1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And if you are visiting with us again, welcome. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church. And we commonly go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And this is where we find ourselves. We spent the last several weeks walking through the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And now we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2. And the title of my sermon this morning is Christ and Him Crucified. And for our worshipers in training, your key words are wisdom, crucified, and speech, if you would like to follow along with those. <coughs> so let's begin by reading together 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul comes to this point in his letter after addressing several things within the church at Corinth already in the first chapter. We saw him speak of divisions that were coming up in the church because several within the church were dividing over which teacher, which leader they wanted to follow. Some were calling themselves to be disciples of Paul and some were calling themselves to be disciples of Apollos or Cephas. And some even called themselves to be those of Christ's party and said, we need no other leader at all. And so he called them on this and asked, was I crucified for you? Do you eat of my body and drink of my blood? Do you follow in the footsteps of Apollos because he is your savior? And so he calls them to follow Christ and to trust in those whom God has appointed as their leadership, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And then he goes on to make clear that the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews and was folly to the Gentiles. And so this morning we come to this monumental passage of Scripture in which Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So this morning I simply want to address two points. The first being the message and mission of the Apostle Paul and as a result of every Christian in verses 1 and 2. So let's read those two verses again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message and mission of the Apostle Paul and every Christian. A little historical background here is going to be very helpful in understanding what Paul is addressing specifically in this passage. 
Paul was in large part setting himself up against and showing himself to be different than a group of people called the sophists of his day. The sophists were a group of individuals who who put a huge premium on style and on form as evidence of education and of power and wisdom. They were wrapped up in eloquence for the sake of eloquence. So public proclamation to them was not a means to an end of delivering a message or even necessarily of persuading someone of their position, but rather an end in itself. They wanted to be seen as literate, as intelligent, as wise in the eyes of man, and they wanted it to show in the way that they turned phrases, in the way that they enunciated words in the way that they structured phrases and emphasized their syllables. And in the end, the goal of the sophists was to win audience approval. And this position was was very popular in Paul's day and probably influenced some of the church to really admire their type of eloquence and then to take that admiration and superimpose that on their Christian preachers and teachers as a benchmark standard of what their proclamation should sound like as they came to the Word of God. And so Paul here is continuing his argument from chapter 1 that God... Verse 27, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is one of the reasons that many within the Corinthian church were dividing as we looked at a few weeks ago. The Christians were influenced by this sophist idea, which, by the way, is where we get our English term sophisticated. They were very impressed, some of them, with Apollos. He became their celebrity because he was so good with words. Acts chapter 18, verse 24 tells us that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And I'm going to address in a, in a minute how it is that Apollos was not in the wrong for being an eloquent man. But at this stop, I just want to point out that Paul's flow of argument from chapter 1 here, namely that there were people in the Corinthian church who were aligning themselves not with the gospel, but rather with certain teachers and preachers because of their preferences and style and in rhetoric. So Paul, right out of the gate here in chapter 2, is labeling himself to be anti-sophistic to ensure that his readers in Corinth knew what their expectations were in many ways going to be contrary to the gospel itself if they were following in this line of thinking. In verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul wrote, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the way Paul is going to oppose the eloquence of the sophists is to show that it empties the cross of its power. So how or 
Why does the sophist's understanding of speech empty the cross of its power? We get a clue in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The reason why the cross and sophistry cannot exist side by side is that the cross is folly to them. The cross destroys human pride. And in the place of our sin, seen as most horrible, and God's free grace shines most brightly. This means then that we deserve nothing. And it takes the knees out from under pride and it makes much of Christ, not us. And that made it complete and total foolishness to the sophists because their entire aim was pride-building and man-centered, man-focused exaltation. This is confirmed in verse 20 of chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The debater, the man who is so nimble with his tongue that he can take either side and win. He is smooth and he is clever and he is verbally agile. And truth and content are not the issue. Rhetorical maneuvering is. Paul says that at the verse end of at the end of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The wisdom in view is not any it's not a deep worldview necessarily up against Christianity. It's simply the sophistry of using language to win debates, to to show oneself clever and eloquent and powerful. So the eloquence that Paul is rejecting here is not so much any particular language conventions, but the exploitation of language to exalt the self and belittle or ignore the crucified Lord altogether. Notice that contrast again in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The point is this. Wherever I meet scribes, wherever I meet debaters who bolster their ego with language jousting and leave the cross in the shadows, I'm going to bring it out of the shadows and I'm going to showcase it totally. I will refuse to play their language games. Now I said earlier, it was, it was not wrong for Apollos to be an eloquent man. And I want to make clear what I'm saying in this. There is a way for a preacher to be eloquent without being sophistic, of like being like the sophist party. We know from Paul's letters that he was a profound thinker and that he could use language in very powerful ways. If you look at the poets and the songwriters through the book of Psalms, you will see very good eloquence. Some of the greatest preachers that the world has ever known have been very effective in their ministries because they are eloquent. And we read books and we hear sermons and we listen to music and read poetry and all of these things we delight in eloquence and can do so 
without it being an end in itself. Eloquent speech is not the decisive factor in salvation and sanctification. God is. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that Word in the Bible is persistently eloquent. The words of the Scriptures are put together in a way that gives it great impact. And God, I believe, wants us to create and use eloquent phrases, but not to do so for our sake, but for His name's sake. And that's the difference. And in spite of and because of the words we have chosen, in the mystery of His sovereign grace, He will glorify Himself in the hearts of others. And in that way, He will keep us humble and He will get all the glory for Himself. So Apollos was justified in being an eloquent man because I suspect from the biblical account that he was using this gift as a means to point others to the cross and to make much of Jesus. So Paul's point is that he did not preach the gospel with the hope of appealing to the worldly, unspiritual admiration of his language and of his eloquence. He did not want people to respond because of his intellect or because of his oratory skills. But this was Paul's focus. This was Paul's aim. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, I did not trouble myself about the knowledge of anything else. So Paul committed himself to that which concerned Christ and Him crucified. Anything else he spoke of amongst the Corinthians was purely incidental. To proclaim that the crucified Christ and Christ alone was the one true living Son of God remained His mission. And this means that he would do only that which served the gospel of Christ crucified, regardless of the expectations of the people or these seductive shortcuts to success. And most of all, the seduction of self-advertising. Neither then in Paul's day nor now today does the gospel rest on the magnetism of big personalities. Woe to us when we fail to look beyond the gift to give glory to the giver. Woe to us when we fail to look beyond the messenger to the cross that he proclaims. Woe to us when we follow mere men and not Christ. Woe to us when we idolize image bearers and not God himself. So what Paul means is that whatever else he knew, Whatever else he spoke about and whatever else he did, he would know it and say it and do it in a way that made very clear it was Christ who was to be worshipped and not him. Paul surely knew of his influence and the tendency of some to follow him because of that, but he refused to allow himself to be made much of. 
the cross to Paul was not some historical relic. It was the center of his everyday work and relationships. And he eats and sleeps and drinks Christ and Him crucified. And I want to dig into that a little bit. I've asked a lot of questions of this text this week and I've attempted to take hold of it from several different directions. But I think the most important thing we can ask is this. What is it to live in such a way that all of life is centered on knowing and proclaiming and living and serving and eating and sleeping and working and doing relationships and hobbies and community in light of Christ and Him crucified? This is the gospel, right? Christ and Him crucified. So really the question is, what is the gospel-centered life? What is This that Paul is proclaiming. Here it is. We, on our best day, are God-belittling, God-mocking glory thieves who God is rightly and justly because He is holy and good going to judge. And if you look at what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, this was what he focused on in the first three chapters. And then he attacks this idea that religion is what saves us. The idea that religion and religious devotion and religious pursuits and commitments are what saves us. And I'm going to be honest with you. The more I talk to people who have spent their lives in and out of the church, the more I'm convinced that many of us are confused about what biblical Christianity versus what religion is. And someone might get upset about me saying this, but I have to. I've I've got to hit on this because it's vital to our understanding of what it means to live a life making much of Christ and Him crucified. I think that because of this confusion between gospel-centered, biblical Christianity and religion, we develop this idea that sees life as an ebb and flow in and out of worldly life and a life of holiness and sanctification. We might have a few years of serving the church and then a few years of partying and drunkenness. Then a few years of hit and miss at some Bible studies and then a few years of being too busy to give ourselves to doing ministry. And then we get a little older and we decide we're not going to do that anymore. So we stop the partying and for the most part we stop using alcohol for the sake of drunkenness. For the most part we will stop saying certain words. And for the most part we start saying, Yay Jesus. So we we think we've cleaned ourselves up and we're good to go. But if you look at the full breadth of the Apostle Paul's ministry and particularly chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Romans and the entire book of Galatians, you will see that he completely attacks this idea and calls it utterly insufficient. There is nothing. Listen to me, because I think we all will assent to this intellectually, and we will agree it's what the Bible teaches, but we don't always live in light of it. There is nothing in regards to behavior modification that we can do to get ourselves in a right standing before God Almighty. And here's the other thing. 
And people who've been good about maintaining a church life for years and years are the very best at this. We have a tendency to look at the good news of Christ and Him crucified, and then we want to add to it. We look at God in the flesh coming and becoming an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, absorbing the wrath of God toward those who would not on their own repent and believe, so that we are by no merit of our own as His people justified, right standing perfectly before God. We look at this and say, this is the Gospel plus whatever, fill in the blank. The Gospel plus social activism. The Gospel plus pro-life causes. The Gospel plus political conservatism. The Gospel plus whatever. But listen, the Gospel plus anything is not the Gospel. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. Christ and Him crucified alone. The other things are not necessarily bad things. In fact, they may be very good things. And I think those things are. But when good things are made to be gospel things, they become idols. And we begin to worship them right alongside the Savior. So we live a gospel-centered life when we get the gospel right. Namely, that God's Son bore God's wrath in our place if in fact we are by faith the children of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the preaching of Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are called by God and believe in Jesus, this is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is my life. This is the only way God could become my Father. Now that His wrath no longer rests on me, He has sent the Spirit of Sonship flooding into my heart, crying, Abba, Father. And that's the Gospel. It's that simple. Yet it is so completely and utterly profound that we will spend our lifetime seeking to live out its implications and we will still fall far short of doing it fully. It's a life of proclaiming Christ crucified in word and in deed, in grace and in truth. And I want to say this. I was recently reminded of this, and I'm borrowing this thought here, but I think it's important. Many of you have heard this cutesy little phrase. Preach the gospel everywhere. When necessary, use words. You know what, that's it? You know what that is? And I just want to be very blunt here. That's, that's really dumb. That's a very unbiblical way for Christians to make themselves feel good about not proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Yes, live out the Gospel. But eventually, that's going to require us to speak up. And those silly kinds of things lend themselves to us doing some really silly stuff. We live under these myths that make us think someone's going to notice that we have coffee mugs with sunset pictures and Bible verses 
and antagonistic bumper stickers and ridiculous sayings on church signs that we didn't order a glass of wine with dinner and say to us, you have something I need. Please, oh please, tell me what it is. I noticed that you didn't drink wine and that your coffee mug at work is elaborately designed with a sunset over the Rocky Mountains that says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Will you please tell me about Christ and His promise of eternal life? It doesn't work that way. It's a myth and it's not true. We must proclaim the truth of Christ in Him crucified. Your life, yes, but your mouth too. And you see, this is where we often fall short in gospel proclamation. We either focus on word or on deed, but have a really difficult time balancing the two out. You see, if we were to just say we want to emphasize missions as a church, that'd be really easy for us to say we give to missions, we support missionaries, we support local ministries. But when our whole lives are about mission and about living in light of Christ and Him crucified, our entire perspective changes. No longer will we have the American mentality that the gospel is about us. The gospel is about God. And we are on mission to make that known and to live in a way that makes much of it whether it's in our jobs or in our hobbies, whatever it is, those things are about mission. And I think Christianity becomes some weird and boring thing that's methodical and empty when we forget that and get off track from that and eventually we lose the gospel altogether. So here's the bottom line and then we'll move on. Christ in Him crucified is the vast to the vast majority of individuals in our culture who call themselves Christians is not the same thing it is to the Apostle Paul. To most people, Christ and Him crucified is a means to an end of no more pain, no more sadness, no more financial woes, more golf, better food, streets of gold. And the way to get that is not to be bathed in the character and nature and holiness of God, but to be moral. Yeah, so we set the bar way down low and we say, don't get drunk. Don't sleep with people who aren't your spouse. Watch your mouth. Go to church on Sunday. Pray over all your meals, especially in public, so others can see you do it. And don't watch R-rated Movies, And then we pat ourselves on the back and we say, what's up with the rest of you fools? Look how easy it is. You're going to hell in a handbasket. You know what you need to do. You need to repent. I'm a good man. I love my wife well. I love my kids. I go to church every Sunday. I don't need to repent, but you do. So we end up setting the bar way down low and then there's this weird transaction that goes on and we put God in a place where He now owes us because we feel like we've done all these righteous things so that we sit back and wait for Him to do His part. And then we begin to believe that we don't need to examine our hearts anymore because we've got really good at going through 
emotions, and then we grumble and complain when God doesn't deliver on what we think He should do for us on our behalf because we held up our end of the deal. And eventually what ends up happening is that we lead ourselves into a great deal of self-deceit and prove in the end that we knew a lot about God, but we never actually knew God. Now, as I said at Sunday school this morning, I pray that God gives me 50 years at Ephesus Church. And if He does, I want to spend the time pleading with you to walk away from cold, dead religion and to put your hope in the cross of Christ and Him crucified alone. I want you to walk away from the religious notion that I'm going to do these things because by doing these things, I will put God into my debt. I will do these things and God will give me this and God will give me that. And then when things go wrong, we say things like, I knew that was going to happen. God has given me so much and then He can take it all away and I never, I never gave back. I know I needed to be going to church more and giving more money and serving more people. I knew this was going to come. So we get this religious idea that if we behave, God's rewards. And if we don't behave, then God punishes. So we need to make sure that we get the rules right and that we follow the rules and that we stay away from the don'ts. Let me tell you, there is no quicker way to grow bitter and angry than to believe things about God that God has never said about Himself. And look, obedience is incredibly important. I'm not minimizing that at all. Being an active part of the church and giving and all these things I'm mentioning, these are incredibly important things. But again, they cannot replace the gospel. We must constantly draw our attention back to Christ and Him crucified. And if we do that, everything else is going to fall in place. Everything else is a result of living in light of the cross. Not because we are living by a list of do's and don'ts. It won't work. You will fail. So I've said all of this about the gospel and about living the gospel-centered life because it is precisely what Paul identifies as the power of God. The effect that the gospel of Christ in him crucified has on Paul is that it makes him a man of broken-hearted love. So out of step with the glory-seeking world that he's in that it can only be explained by the power of God. That's my second point. The power of God in Christ and him crucified. We see in verses 3 through 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul has jettisoned the plausible words of worldly wisdom and eloquence, and as a result, he disowns the protection of this mirage that comes through rhetorical tricks and routines which offer this false sense of self-confidence by going through these motions. 
So Paul says he's not coming in the pride-seeking, self-confident manner of the sophists of his day, but rather in fear and in trembling. He's not an audience-pleasing performer. He's a fearfully trembling ambassador for Christ in whom God is pleased to work by His Spirit to show forth the power of God. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, the opponents of Paul were saying, His letters are weighty and strong, but His bodily presence is weak and His speech is of no account. So evidently, Paul did not have a very strong appealing appearance. In fact, it is believed that he had something physically wrong with him that made him chronically weak and very unattractive. But why is this important? For the same reason he says it's important in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he writes of the thorn in his flesh. Namely, that Christ's power is made perfect in man's weakness. He says this very thing in our text this morning, doesn't he? In verse 3, he says, He's with them in weakness. In verse 4, His words were in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. The same power that he says is made perfect in his weakness. So Paul exalts the God exalts that God would be willing to use such a weak and feeble man so that the powerful effect of his preaching might clearly be of God. So what is this? What is the power of God in verses 4 and 5? The power of God in which our faith should rest is the divine power that is unleashed by the death of Christ to save sinners to justify the ungodly. When Jesus was at His weakest, in the agony of the cross, God's power was at its strongest. Because Jesus died and bore the punishment of our sin, all the power of God who created the universe and all that's within it was loosed for the benefit of God's elect. And Paul said in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him, gave him up for all of us, surely by His infinite power, He will give us all good things with Him. And see, just as the wisdom of God is foolishness with man, so the power of God is viewed by men as weakness. God wills it that way. Chapter 1, verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So the power in which saving faith rests is the power of divine grace that sustains the humble, loving heart and radiates out through its weakness. That is the power we see in Christ. Meekly, humbly, lovingly mounting the cross for our sins. The power of God's grace sustaining the humble, loving heart of Christ and radiating through His weakness on the cross. This is the resting place of saving faith. And this is the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
the Apostle Paul knew that if he was going to be an agent of reconciliation, an ambassador of the crucified Christ to win people to faith in Christ, then he had to follow the way of Calvary. He had to draw people's attention, not to his own power or wisdom or status or flair or eloquence, but to the power of God made perfect in weakness. He knew that if human power or beauty or intelligence or class got center stage, whatever conversions happened would not be conversions of the crucified Christ. So here's what that looks like for us. It looks like us not spending our entire lives soaking in the Bible, soaking in knowledge and learning doctrine and theology and hearing sermons and sitting in Sunday school classes and still saying, I don't, I don't know enough. I just know I'm going to talk to someone about Jesus and they're going to ask me a question and I'm not going to know how to answer them. When the reality is each one of us probably has enough Bible knowledge to write several volumes of literature and know enough people who don't know the love of Jesus that if we get serious about loving our neighbors, we would be so consumed with living gospel-centered lives that we wouldn't have time to be focused on self-centered exaltation. Here's the deal. A lot of us have eaten a lot of Bible. And because of it, we're really, really fat. We need some exercise. And so as your biblical dietitian, I prescribe to you a healthy, balanced diet of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified in word and in deed. We need to slim up a little bit around here. We need to balance the scales a little bit better because we are obese with knowledge. And do you know why we sit on knowledge and proclaim that we can't proclaim Christ and Him crucified because we don't know enough or because we're going to mess it up and make Christ look bad? We say those things because we're prideful. And really, in the end, we think we're going to look stupid. I'm going to tell you right now that in the eyes of the world, as you proclaim Christ and Him crucified, you will look stupid. There is no way around that. But let us look stupid together. And when you are living out the implications of the gospel, you are going to look really, really stupid and really, really weak to the world. But let's be stupid and weak together because we proclaim the wisdom of God. And in our weakness, His strength is made most powerful. It's okay to look that way to the world. Because true faith is grasping hold of the promises of God and being reassured that in our absolute weakness, God's power is most prominent when our faith and our hope and our life rests in the gospel goodness of Christ and Christ crucified. Let's pray together. Father, help us to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Help us all to be fools for Jesus. 
that we would proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of sorrow and tragedy. That we would proclaim the life-changing new birth of Christ because of His death on the cross on our behalf, absorbing the wrath of the Father, that as we trust in Him, that we have new life and peace and joy. Help us, Father, to not be prideful. Help us to not be so consumed with self-exaltation that we do not exalt and boast only in the cross. Help us, Father, to lay aside our comfort and our desire to be built up by men instead of seeking to proclaim the wisdom and truth of God that in our weakness the gospel would be most powerful. Help us, Father, to repent of religion. Help us, Father, to turn from a mere sense of morality and instead turn to the truth of the gospel. The only power which exists to transform us from one degree of glory to the next. The only power that exists to sanctify us and give us a right standing before God. Father, help us to see where we fall short. Help us to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And help us, Father, to live gospel-centered lives. That the world would see us in our foolishness. And that they would be in awe of our great and holy God whom we worship forever and ever. Father, bless your word. Help us to walk away from here with truth, meditating on the scriptures, not simply walking away and, and forgetting what we've heard today, not simply walking away and putting aside your word until next Sunday. But Father, walking away resolved to be on mission, resolved to live gospel-centered lives, resolved to make much of Christ and Him crucified. Let that be our every desire in this life. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.